Well, good morning, everybody. Merry Christmas. Come on, everybody ready for Christmas? Everybody got all their shopping done, everything? Okay, okay. Well, hey, how about we take a second and we welcome everybody online, everybody that's able to be a part of church this morning online. Come on, let's put it together. So glad you guys are able to be a part of this with us, uh, and I'm very grateful for the production team and the creative team that have made it possible uh, for us to be able to have an online service uh, that is going very, very well. A great community is building online, delighted about that. Uh, but about uh, nine years ago, my life transformed dramatically as I stood in a hospital room and my oldest son was born, and uh, I became a father, and something deep meaningful, uh, something highly significant happened in my heart and my mind, and my sense of humor uh, matured. And suddenly, my love for dad jokes became a thing. And because it's Christmas, I would love to share some Christmas dad jokes with you today. Is that okay if we take just a few moments on some Christmas dad jokes? Everyone okay with that? Now, these are, these are deep, these are intellectual, um, you may need a moment to think about it. You may need to talk through it with your spouse on the way home. Uh, I'm completely fine with that. Um, set your expectations high is what I'm saying. So, um, okay, this is, this is one to get us started. Why is it always so cold in Christmas? Because it's December. <laughs> now, the, I'll say this, I, I don't know about it at home, but the laughter in the room, I don't think matched the quality of the joke, but I've got more. What is red, white, and blue during Christmas? A sad candy cane. Again, the volume of laughter is... Okay, now we get into the good stuff. Why is it getting harder to buy advent calendars? Because their days are numbered. That was good one, right? Okay. Uh, what does a gingerbread man use to keep his bed warm? Cookie sheet. <laughs> what do snowmen like to do on the weekend? Just chill out. Okay, when I read this one at home, I'm not gonna lie, I giggled on the couch and concerned Megan. What do you get when Santa becomes a detective? Santa clues. Okay, and here's one for the kids. Last one, why was the snowman looking through a box of carrots? He was picking his nose. You're welcome. So, So Christmas in our house is a big deal. I'm sure it's exactly the same for you. And, uh, you know, we, we do, you know, we got the tree up and we're watching Christmas movies and there's constantly Christmas music happening in the house. And last night we made a whole bunch of Christmas cookies and a few different traditions that we do as a family. Um, but really Christmas time, as much as we do all of the stuff, it is still the time where we get together and we remember the true meaning of Christmas and what really matters. And that is, of course, the birth of Jesus and what that means and what it represents for us as people of faith and what it means to, to us as we try to live a life where we're putting God first and following him. And so uh, one of the things that uh, we do in our house, and I would be uh, sure that a number of you do the same thing, is we read the Christmas story, the birth of Jesus with the kids. And so uh, there's a Bible app that we use uh, specifically for kids, and we do it regularly. And the story that they have around the birth of Jesus is very typical of what you would get in different books around the nativity. 
It's a story about shepherds and wise men and stables and stars and angels and mangers. And it's all very nice. It's all very neat. It's all very clean. I mean, the way that some of those stables look on postcards, it looks like an Airbnb place that you'd pay $300 a night to stay in. You know what I'm saying? But there's a reality to the story about the birth of Jesus that if we just stick with the cleaned up kitty version, I, I think we miss. So when, you know, when I'm talking with my seven-year-old and my nine-year-old uh, about you know, the story of Jesus and it's the cleaned up version and there's the stable and the angels, uh, that's okay because they're kids. It's okay that that's like an introduction for them for the story of who Jesus is and what his life meant and what it meant when he died on the cross for them. And uh, That's fine because they're kids. But there's a message that the church is putting out to the world is that the birth of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus is the greatest story that has ever been told. It is a life-changing story. It is a story that has changed all of human history. It is a story with a track record where for thousands of years, people's lives have been dramatically transformed because they put their trust in the validity and the truth of this story. And yet we clean it up and we package it all nice and neat. And I don't know about you, but I don't know if a cute fuzzy postcard is changing anyone's life. So there's a reality around the story of Jesus. There's a reality around the birth of Jesus that, that, is, that is downright messy, that is downright dirty, that is somewhat gross, is horrifying, is scary. And in the middle of it, there's God fulfilling his promises. In the middle of the mess, God steps in, God interrupts human history, God makes a way, God sends a savior, God sends his son. That is a life-changing message. Stables, stars, it's a part of the story, but it's not the only part of the story. And by cleaning it up, we're missing something. So we're going to go through and we're going to look at uh, a number of different elements of the Christmas story today. We're going to bounce around a little bit and we're going to hopefully find something in here that makes this story of Jesus so compelling that it is truly life-changing. Not just in December. But this is truly life-altering. So we're going to start off by uh, looking at the shepherds, and we're going to be in Luke's gospel. We are going to jump around a little bit, but we're going to start off looking at the shepherds in Luke 2, starting in verse 8. That night there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. So the shepherds, they probably didn't own uh, the sheep they were looking after. They were likely hired hands. And there's every likelihood that the sheep they were tending to were uh, giving birth to the lambs that would be used in the temple for the sacrifices. It was a lonely, dirty job. You couldn't leave the, the sheep and the lambs easily. You, you know, it was very isolated. It was grubby. It was grimy. You're by yourself. You're off on the hillside somewhere, all alone. And then suddenly, in verse 9, an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. They were terrified. But the angel reassured them, don't be afraid, he said. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. It's amazing that whenever an angel turns up, everyone gets terrified. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. We're going to come back to the significance of Bethlehem in just a moment. Verse 12, and you will realize, uh, recognize him by this sign. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth lying in a manger. Now, here's a, a cool little side note with the shepherds. It was their business to make sure that the sacrificial lambs were born safely. Now, it was the priest's job to inspect the lambs and make sure that they were fit for sacrifice. But these were the first people to give the lambs a look over. 
If a shepherd noticed that the lamb was no good for sacrifice, they wouldn't bring it for sacrificial offerings. The shepherds got the first look at the lamb. When John the Baptist says that Jesus is the lamb of God, that he is the perfect sacrifice, it was the shepherds that got the first look at him. That's a side note, write it down somewhere, maybe it'll be helpful at some point. Anyway, verse 13. Suddenly the angel was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. Vast host. So uh, in other places in the New Testament, the word that's used for vast is translated as a crowd, great number, a multitude, and host is a military term uh, describing an army. I mean, this is quite the spectacle that has turned up to surprise these shepherds that are just taking care of sheep on a hillside somewhere. This is quite the moment that has turned up. Verse 15, when the angels have returned to heaven, the shepherds said to each other, let's go to Bethlehem. Let's see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. They hurried to the village and found Mary and Joseph, and there was the baby lying in the manger. And I wonder if the shepherds would have gone to see the king of kings if he was born where kings were supposed to have been born. The shepherds wouldn't have been comfortable in the palace. These were dirty outcasts. These were, well, these were dirty people that you didn't really want to be around. They stank a little bit. They had a lonely job, probably a bit weird. And they turned up to see the birth of a king. If they turned up to a palace, I'm sure, and they wouldn't have felt comfortable at all. But he wasn't born in a palace. The king of kings was born in a stable, exactly the kind of place where shepherds would have felt comfortable to come and meet the greatest human being that will ever live. Verse 17, after seeing him, the shepherds told everyone what had happened and what the angel had said to them about this child. All who heard the shepherd's story were astonished, but Mary kept all these things in her heart and thought about them often. The shepherds went back to their flocks, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen. It was just as the angel had told them. It wasn't just the spectacle of the angels, the vast host Who knows how many there was? Who knows how big this army of angels was that had turned up? It wasn't that alone that changed their lives that day. As they turned up at the stable and they saw the baby in a feeding trough. Not some nice, cute little manger with just the right amount of straw. This is a place where the animals were coming to eat. I've had children. I'm not putting them in a feeding trough. But as the shepherds came and that's what they saw and they knew that this was the son of, they knew that this was the savior. They knew this was the king. They knew what the angels had said that this was true. And their lives were changed that day. And just as the shepherds were invited to have their lives changed that day by the story of God, you and I are invited to have our lives changed by the story of God, starting with the birth of Jesus. And this idea of, uh, in, in the nativity story, in the story about the birth of Jesus, there's, there are wonderful, nice, cleaned up moments that we put in the kid's story, and then there's the horrifying stuff. So, for instance, you know, there's the wonderful encounter that the shepherds have with the angels, but we don't focus so much on the dirty, grubby, grimy, gross stable because there was no room for them in the house. You know, we, we celebrate the good news of there's a family that's having a baby. That's wonderful news. But we don't so much focus on that there's a scandal around a teen pregnancy and an unwed mother. We, we applaud Joseph for faithfully supporting Mary. And we forget that God needed to send an angel to tell him not to call off the whole thing. 
We recognize and we remember that the wise men brought gifts, but we forget the manipulation, the lies, and even the murder that Herod committed in his interaction with the wise men on, as they were on their way to meet Jesus. But the story of Jesus, the story of Jesus has the power to change lives. It has the power to change lives in all its mess, in all its scandal, in all its, its stuff that would normally upset us and the stuff that would normally cause controversy and the things that upset us and the things that can bring fear to people that are reading this stuff and people that bring confusion. In the middle of that mess, Jesus' story changes people's lives. And that's why today, if the title of the message is important to you, it's simply titled, Messy Christmas. There was a request for me to sing, we wish you a messy Christmas, but I'm not going to. No, I'm not going to. What do you mean, ah? We wish you a messy Christmas. All right, that's it. That's what I'm doing. But the story of Jesus, it has the power to change lives. It has the power and the potential to change lives. It has been changing lives for thousands of years. And it's not because of some nice fuzzy postcard. It's because what happened that day is that God stepped into human history and changed things permanently and eternally. The story of Jesus, it it doesn't start with the manger. The Bible tells us that uh, Jesus existed before creation, that he was there before God made human history, before God made creation. Jesus was with him. Jesus was a part of the Godhead. So it didn't start in the manger. But even if you look back uh, through the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, you see uh, that Jesus was, was being promised in that moment that a savior would come and is that a God would look around at all of humanity and would see the mess that we're making of things and see the craziness that's going on because sin had come into the world. God steps in and takes initiative and says, I'm gonna fix this up. Just like a loving father. Those of you who are parents in here, I know there have been times when your kids have caused absolute chaos and made ginormous mistakes, errors, and incredibly destructive things and you've had to step in as a parent and say, I'm gonna take care of this. That's what God has done with humanity. He has stepped in and he has said, okay, I'm going to take care of this because you bozos can't figure it out for yourself. And it starts with, uh, you start to look at the Old Testament story through the book of Genesis. God builds a special, unique relationship with Abraham. And as he comes to Abraham, he makes a series of promises. And these promises that God makes to Abraham, which over time he fulfills, it earned Abraham the title or the name of uh, Father Abraham or the father of the Jewish nation. Father Abraham, and we're going to read one of the things that uh, God would say to Abraham in Genesis 22. There are a handful of times that God came to Abraham and gave incredible promises uh, that would result in Jesus. That would, once we get to the manger, start to make a whole lot of sense. But I want to read this one in Genesis 22:17. I will certainly bless you. This is God speaking. I will multiply your descendants beyond number, like the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will conquer the cities of their enemies. And through your descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed, all because you have obeyed me. And this is one of the moments that God had made declarations like this uh, uh, to Abraham about the significance of his family, the significance of his legacy, the significance of his descendants. That God's work of fixing and healing the broken relationship between God and humanity would happen through one of his descendants. And this started a biblical pattern with Abraham of women that had a difficult time getting pregnant, having miraculous pregnancies that would result in a child that would change the course of human history. It started with Abraham and Sarah as they gave birth to Isaac. It continued with Rebecca as she gave birth to Esau and Jacob. It continued with Rachel as she gave birth to Joseph and Benjamin. 
Manoah's wife gave birth to Samson. Hannah gave birth to Samuel, all in deeply unlikely circumstances. These women that should not have been able to get pregnant, they're having a difficult time getting pregnant, they got pregnant miraculously, and the child they gave birth to changed the course of human history, moved the story of the Bible closer and closer towards this baby that was in the manger that we just read about. And 700 years before Mary would be visited by an angel, the prophet Isaiah wrote this, the Lord himself will give you the sign. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son and call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Now this is a strange promise. We haven't seen this one. I mean, we've seen barren women getting pregnant. We've seen ladies that have had a difficult time getting pregnant, be blessed with a child, but we haven't seen a virgin becoming pregnant before. This is brand new. This, is a, this promise is a strange promise 700 years ago. It's a strange promise today, but that's the promise that was made. And as we fast forward to Matthew 1, Verse 18, this is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph. But before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Just like Isaiah said, now this is brand new. This had never happened before. We'd had all kinds of interactions where people that have had a difficult time getting pregnant got pregnant to move the story of God further on down the field. But this one is brand new. And in the same moment as Mary, a virgin, became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit, we see God both continuing what he started in the Old Testament and starting something brand new. At the same time that God is fulfilling promises that he made in the Old Testament, he is also continuing to make brand new promises that he is going to continue what he started with Abraham, that he is going to bring the descendants of God. He is going to explode this thing to all the nations are going to come to know God. That is the power of the story of Jesus. There's unlikely pregnancies, and then there's virgin birth. Now, if we're talking about different degrees of impossibility... I mean, Sarah was real old when she had Isaac, but Mary was a virgin. If we're talking, both are impossible, but if we're looking at degrees of impossibility, this child in a manger was absolutely impossible if it weren't for a gift from God. And there's a few other ways that the story like this develops. Excuse me a moment. There's a few other ways that the story of the birth of Jesus continues like this. Looking back to the Old Testament and looking forward to what God is doing. Matthew 2 verse 1, Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose and we have come to worship him. Now this journey for the wise men or the magi as they're known would have taken around 18 months. This is 18 months of crossing desert and terrain on camels, likely. Around 18 months, and they saw the star appear the day that Jesus was born, and something about it prompted something inside to say, we've got to find out. We have to find out. And so they set on, on an 18-month journey just to find out what on earth this star was all about. So by the time they get to Jesus, he's probably between 18 months and two years old, and they go to visit King Herod. Now, King Herod, as we've talked about just a few weeks ago, is an awful, evil, evil man. Terrible king. And the idea of there being a rival king didn't work for him. So verse 3, King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this. 
As was everyone in Jerusalem, he called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law and asked, where is the Messiah to be born? So the leading priests read to him uh, from the book of Micah. In Bethlehem in Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah, for a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd for my people. And we're reminded in the Old Testament promise about the Messiah, about the king, being uh, one of King David's descendants. David was a descendant of Abraham. And there's Old Testament promises that the one, the Messiah, the one that was going to set people free once and for all, was going to be a descendant of David. And as we talk about the Messiah being born in Bethlehem, anybody listening to this, anybody that knew their Old Testament to this, knew that David was from Bethlehem. Bethlehem was David's hometown. So the promise that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem was a fulfillment that the king that was coming was not just like David, he was greater than David. And as the wise men start this interaction with Herod, everyone is reminded, okay, this king that these wise men are talking about, apparently he's going to be born in Bethlehem. You know what that means. Matthew 2.13, after the wise men were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, flee to Egypt with the child and his mother, the angel said. Stay there until I tell you to return because Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. That night, Joseph left for Egypt with the child and Mary, his mother, and they stayed there until Herod's death. This fulfilled what the Lord had spoken through the prophet. I called my son out of Egypt. Now, the prophet that wrote that was also about 700 years before this, and the people would have instantly, their minds instantly would have gone to Moses rescuing the people from Egypt. We're talking about the son being called out of Egypt. Not only that, we also have uh, Herod who's threatening to kill babies, which is exactly what Pharaoh did in the story of Moses. And Moses, as he led three million people through the Red Sea, the great deliverance moment of the Old Testament, he delivered a nation. But remember the promise that was made to Abraham, it wasn't for a nation, it was for all the nations of the world. And so this king of kings, fulfilling the promise that was made that David would have a descendant, we also now see he is greater than Moses. So we have the fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham. We have fulfillment of the promises that were made to David. We have fulfillment that someone would be even greater than Moses is here. And in the middle of the scandal, in the middle of the mess, in the middle of the crazy, in the middle of the fear, in the middle of the threats, the lies, the manipulation, the dirt of the stable, the humble beginnings, We have the fulfillment of three of the greatest heroes of the Old Testament that all pointed towards a savior as we see that the promises to Abraham are being fulfilled in this child, that the king of kings that David was promised would be one of his descendants is fulfilled in this child, that the great deliverer that will be even greater with Moses is fulfilled in this child. This is the story of the birth of Jesus. And the invitation that was given to the wise men, the shepherds, is that this story is a story that you can be a part of. You can be included in this story. That's the promise that is made uh, in the whole New Testament, is that this is a story that you can be involved in. And the New Testament writers, uh, they believed that this story had the power to change people's lives. That's why they wrote these things down. 
The New Testament was written because the authors believed that this was the power and the potential to change people's lives. They weren't just writing these things down so that once a year at Christmas, we could tell the kids a nice story. The New Testament writers fully believed through both their personal experience and what they'd heard from many, many others, that these stories, they're writing this down, that an accurate account of what happened with this baby Jesus, a Jesus he grew up, became an adult, as he launched the church, as the church continued in the book of Acts, and all the letters that were written, they believed that this had the power and the potential to change people's lives. And the story of Jesus, of course, it doesn't finish with a baby, it finishes with a savior who has come to be redeem and rescue people as the king of kings. I want to read this verse to you from 1 Corinthians. This is uh, a number of years after Jesus had, had died, resurrected, and ascended back to heaven. Christ died for our sins just as the scriptures said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day just as the scriptures said. He was seen by Peter and then by the 12. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. Last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, this is the apostle Paul, I also saw him. Seen, saw. This is Paul appealing to the people listening to this letter for the first time thousands of years ago that they were eyewitnesses recording the life of Jesus. This is significant. This is interesting. This is not somebody overhearing something and then running with it and writing a bunch of letters about it. This is not someone told me and so I'm going to repeat it. It's not somebody coming to me and saying, hey, Tom, there's a hippo in the parking lot right now. And then me saying, well, that's incredible. I'm going to write about that. That's not what happened. See, if somebody comes to me and says something crazy like, Tom, there's a hippo in the parking lot, and I believe it, and I write a story, and I try to convince a bunch of other people that there's a hippo in the parking lot, that's a mistake. As soon as I say, I saw a hippo in the parking lot, it's right there. It's either a deliberate lie or it's the truth. It can't be a mistake. This continues, this idea of the eyewitness continues. First John, we proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning, whom we have heard and seen. This is John who would write the Gospel of John, who would write three letters in the uh, New Testament, and who would also write the book of Revelation. We saw him with our own eyes, and touched him with our own hands. He is the word of life. It's a good name for a church. <laughs> this one, who is life itself, was revealed to us, and we have seen him. And now we testify and proclaim to you that he is the one who is eternal life. We saw this. I saw this. This is either me telling you the truth, or it's me deliberately, intentionally lying to you and misleading you. This cannot be a mistake because he's saying, no, I'm giving you an accurate eyewitness account. Second Peter, for we were not making up clever stories when we told you about the powerful coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
we saw his majestic splendor with our own eyes. And then Luke, many people who have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us, they used eyewitness reports circulating among us from the early disciples. Having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I have decided to write an accurate account. There's a suggestion that every time in the Bible someone is mentioned by name, it's because either they were alive or their children were alive, so you could go to them for verification. There are times in the Bible where you'll hear about there was a blind man, and then there's other times where you read about blind Bartimaeus. The idea being is they couldn't track down who the blind man was, but blind Bartimaeus, oh, we know him. Or we know his children. We can verify what's true. There was a great appeal among the New Testament authors that we saw this. And as we write these things down, either we are mis misleading you, or we are actively, intentionally, deliberately misleading you because we are telling you we saw this, or they're telling the truth. I don't see any middle ground in this. As best as I can try and wrap my head around this idea, I don't see a middle ground for how a mistake can slip in here. If you were going to lie about this, this is an evil thing to lie about because you're saying the baby in the manger has the power to change your life if you put your faith and trust in him. But if that baby is just another baby, that's leading people away from God, not closer to him. But if that baby is the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the one that can save humanity, it is a great message. And as I've thought about this, I have no idea, I cannot pick a single motive for why the New Testament authors would lie. Why would they lie? Typically when people lie and manipulate, it's normally to have some kind of gain, some kind of, you know, either sex, money, or power. And I can tell you that the disciples got none of that. The disciples, the people that wrote the New Testament, they didn't get power, they didn't get glory, they didn't get acclaim, they didn't get wealth, they didn't get prestige. They got thrown in jail. They got persecuted by the Romans. They got ostracized from their families and their communities because they put their faith in Jesus. I could not think of a single reason why they would lie about who Jesus was, but I can think of great reasons why they would tell the truth and want to declare it to anyone and everyone that would listen because they believed it has the power to change lives because they believed it themselves, had their lives changed, and they saw it in many, many others. Come on, word of life. This is good news. The only motive that the New Testament writers, including the people that wrote the Nativity story, the only motive they have is that they believe that this is true because they believe that this story had the power and the potential to change people's lives. And if it could change lives 2,000 years ago, and it's been changing lives ever since, it can definitely change your life, my life, and the people you care about most. The story of Christmas is a messy story but our stories are messy. Now you may look to the person on your left and you may very confidently say, my life might be messy, but it's not as messy as theirs. And maybe you look to the person on your right and you say, my life's messy, and boy, it's a lot messier than theirs. But we all have messy stories. And in the middle of our messy stories, Jesus turns up and says, okay, 
I'm here for you to be a part of my story. And Jesus invites us to be a part of his story, the greatest story the world will ever know. And his story is about setting people free. It is about giving people hope. It is about securing people's eternity in him. It is about forgiveness. It is about letting people know that they are loved beyond any human comprehension. That's a story I like being a part of. Excuse me just a moment. A number of years ago, I was getting ready to speak at a a youth meeting, and I wrote a message, and uh, point C on point two, I wrote down something that has come to shape my, if you want to say my philosophy on life and how I understand the world and how I make sense of the world around me, and I wrote down something that has come to mean a great deal to me. I even have a sign of it in my office as we speak. I wrote down that... If you believe that Jesus is who he says he is, the only logical response is to follow him with everything. Now that's a mouthful. But if you go with the absolutism of that, if you believe that Jesus is who he says he is, if you believe this story, that God cares so much about humanity, that he took responsibility himself, that you guys can't fix this yourself, so I'm gonna become humanity, I'm gonna send my son as a baby thousands of years ago, I'm gonna send him, I'm gonna fix this up for you. I'm gonna pay a price on a cross that you could never ever pay. I'm gonna rise again from the grave, conquering the power of sin and death once and for all. If you believe that, the only logical response is to follow him with everything. If you believe the Christmas story, it makes no sense that any one of us would be apathetic or casual towards our relationship with God. If we believe that the Christmas story is true, if we believe that God's love is demonstrated to us on a cross, why on earth would we follow God half-heartedly? Why would we be satisfied with the Christmas card of the Christmas story and call that our faith? This is a God who changes lives. This is a God who has an incredible track record over thousands of years of transforming people's lives. There's uh, Pew Research, is a respectable organization that researched these kind of things. They found that on the planet today, as of today, they estimate that there are over two billion Christians. That's two billion people whose lives have been transformed. They've also calculated their best estimation is that Since Jesus was alive, since he walked the earth, there have been seven billion people who have put their trust and faith in him and had their lives changed. That's quite a track record. I mean, that's, that's quite something. These are the stories, as you hear, people share, this is how God changed my life. This is how he dramatically turned things upside down for me. This is how we fixed my life together. This is how he brought healing. This is how he brought hope into my life. This is the story of Jesus. It's not just about a manger. It's not just about some cute little stable somewhere. This is a story about people's changing lives. I have a couple of questions for you. Hopefully this week you'll have a chance to think about these, reflect on these a little bit, and maybe be something helpful to pray through or even talk to someone about. But the first question I have for you is, do you believe that Jesus is who he says he is? And what did Jesus say about himself? Jesus said that he fulfills the promises that God started with Abraham. 
Jesus is comfortable believing that he is a greater deliverer than Moses, that he is the king of kings beyond even King David. And if you believe that, that brings me to our second question. Are you ready to follow him with everything? And what does it mean to follow him with everything? It means that you're not the author of your story anymore. He is. It means you're not the hero of your story anymore. He is. And Jesus' story is a story of forgiveness, of hope, of freedom, setting people free, living a life of purpose, living a life of healing. And that's a story I want to belong to. If you're here today and I, I don't know what happened, I don't know for those of you online that are watching, I don't know what caused you to be a part of church this morning, I don't know your life story, but maybe just maybe you're here and you've never thought about the significance of a Christmas story before. You've never thought about that significance of, of what that baby and the feeding trough means to you and what it means to those around you. And maybe today something from today's service has got you to the point of, you know what? I need to change my story. I need to change my story. And if that's you, I'd love to pray for you. About 17 years ago now, I prayed a prayer, very simple, just saying, God, I wanna follow you. I didn't have all the answers. I didn't know how to put one foot in front of the other. I just knew that I wanted to make a decision to follow Jesus, and that 19-year-old kid never looked back. I wanna invite you to make that decision today to let the story of Jesus change your life. And I wanna invite everyone here just to close your eyes and bow your heads. This is just to give privacy to those around you. Give us a moment to focus on what really matters in this moment. But if this is you, if you're at that point where you would say, you know what, I'm ready. I'm ready to follow God. I'm ready to trust Him. I'm ready to make His story my story. I'm ready to let him be the author, him be the hero, him be Lord of my life. And if that's you today, I'd love to pray for you. I want to invite you, just put your hand in the air, just for a moment, online, you can click, I've raised my hand. Amen, anybody else here? Thank you. Anybody else? I promise we won't embarrass you, we won't make you do anything weird. When we pray in a moment, I'd just love to know who I'm praying for. Amen, anybody else here? Amen, thank you, thank you. Anybody else, just put your hand up just for a moment, just so I know who we're praying for. Amen. Come on, Word of Life Church, can we please celebrate people making the greatest decision we could ever make in here. We're gonna pray a simple prayer. The words are gonna be on the screen. I wanna invite you to pray. I'll say a line, and then if you repeat it back, and I believe wholeheartedly, you pray a prayer like this, believing it, it has the power to change lives. So come on, everybody, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I believe you died for me. I want to follow you. I invite you to be Lord of my life. Help me follow you every day. I want to leave my old life of sin behind and heal my broken relationship with God. 
in Jesus' name, amen. Come on, one more time, let's celebrate. People both in the room, I'm gonna believe online too. Word of Life, thank you so much for coming. I'm so glad I was able to come and share something with you today. But why don't you go ahead, let's welcome James and Stacey as they come and help us figure out what our next step might be.